Imagine that you're standing in a courtyard of an ancient Roman villa. While you're there, a herald enters the courtyard and gathers the slaves of the villa all around and informs everyone that there's a new governor of the province and he has imprisoned their cruel slave master. The herald continues and says, Each of you as slaves may choose. You may choose freedom or you may choose to remain a slave in the service of the new governor. For a moment, the slaves are stung by the insult of the herald's suggestion. Granted freedom. What self-respecting human being would ever think of choosing to submit to a new slave master now? But the insult is quickly forgotten as the reality of their liberation sinks in and dancing and hugging and rejoicing, they run off free at last. But as the dust clears and the voices fade, the herald realizes that there's an old slave that's still standing there. Well, says the herald, aren't you going to run off with the others? You're free. You can go. Sir, says the slave to the herald. Tell me about your governor. This wise man understood that the ultimate question when considering freedom or slavery is the character of the master that you might serve. Particularly in ancient Rome, slavery to the right master could prove a source of honor, of privilege, of joy, and otherwise unattainable freedoms to a faithful slave. Tell me about this new governor. We should really relate with this old slave, shouldn't we, as followers of Jesus Christ. Relate well to this reality because there was a day when my imprisoned, tortured, and spiritually blind soul was liberated from the bondage of sin and death by Jesus Christ. The liberator came in and set me free from this bondage, no longer tied to it. And from that day onward, it's my high calling now, my soul's deepest joy to walk in active obedience to the infinitely loving lordship and mastery of my Savior, Jesus Christ. As I say those words, how do they hit you? Do you consider yourself the glad slave of Jesus Christ? Does your soul surge in joyful agreement when I say that? Do you say, yes, he's my Lord? Or maybe you're a little bit uncomfortable with that thought. And maybe honestly, you're really a bit offended by it. That your soul would be subject to the will of another. I mean, God can help me out, but a slave of God? I would like to think of my relationship as something different than that. And certainly as Scripture plays out, we can think of it other than that, but never leaving that concept. In the first 14 verses of Romans chapter 6, we considered last week the joyful news that born-again believers in Jesus are liberated from the bondage of sin. Let's remember and allow it to filter over our soul again Romans chapter 6 and verse 4 said that we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism 
into death, believing again from last week that the word baptism is just used of the whole concept of conversion, including water baptism, not as a means of conversion, but as part of the declaration of our conversion, coming to faith in Christ, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We've been liberated from the bondage that we might live a new life. A new life in Christ. 4, verse 5, If we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We have died to sin, therefore we will rise with Him. So, verse 6, We know then that our old self, or our old man, was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing or rendered inoperative, rendered powerless, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. My relationship to sin in Jesus Christ cannot be described in any other way than I died. There was a death. There was a complete and absolute severance from the bondage of sin. For the one who has died, verse 7, has been set free from sin, no longer under this slave master. Now, verse 8, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Does being set free from sin mean I'm no longer under temptation? Not at all. I remain subject to the voice of of the old master. Never under his bondage again, but still susceptible to the temptation. So I need to consider myself dead to sin. I need to realize I've changed fields. Remember last week's analogy. I've changed masters. I'm under a new rule. And I need to live like it. Will I be tempted? Of course. Verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. The battle will be there, but I can fight this battle because I've been delivered from my master, Satan, and sin. So, getting very practical, verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. The negative, I am not to give my body parts over to the working of the old regime's ways. My hands and eyes and ears and legs and all parts of me are to be used Not to serve godless ways, but to serve the righteousness to which Christ has called me. For sin will have no dominion over you, verse 14, since you are not under law, but under grace. That is, we are not set up under law, which we cannot keep because of the weakness of the flesh where the law is nothing but a continual reminder of our inability to do what is right. There's a new relationship now. You are now, through the death and resurrection of Christ, in a situation where you're not under the law, but under His grace to live in response to the power that He places within you through His Spirit to fill in some blanks. But under grace, that is under this liberating power, 
which renders us forgiven and free from sin and its power, we are freed to live righteously. Now those who are tracking with Paul to this point may again raise the question that free grace tends to suggest. That is why verse 15 comes out as it does after verse 14. We're not under law, but we're under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? This is the objection that may come. And as we follow through with what Paul says here, we find its connection to the first 14 verses in verses 15 through 19, indicating that believers are enslaved to righteousness. So we are freed from the bondage of sin, but we are also then enslaved to righteousness. So as he says in verse 15, are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. We're missing the whole point if we see it that way. This recalls the question of verse 1, and apparently a common objection Paul faced when preaching the gospel. Liberation, here's what he's saying, think of it, liberation from the law does not spell liberation from righteous living. By no means such thinking is irrational, Paul argues, verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So the question is this, to what power and authority do you present your body and mind and will to obey? Now listen, there's only two options here. And that's what's being played out before us in this text. You are either bound to the authoritative power of sin, which leads to spiritual death, or you are bound to the authoritative power of obedience to God, which leads to righteous living. Which is it? Believers who are freed from the bondage of sin, verses 1 through 14, are simultaneously transferred over to the mastery of Jesus' reign and will. Going back to the analogy of the Roman slave, that's where the analogy breaks down. I use it to illustrate that concept, but really there is no middle ground. We either are under slavery to sin or we are transferred into a place of slavery to God, to His Word, to His will. It is one or the other. So Paul is anxious to warn us here against, I think, two common errors. The first error is this. Since I have been freed from the power of sin, I'm now free to sin. Very illogical, isn't it? But that's what some of his critics were saying, verse 1, also in chapter 3 and here in verse 15. Since I'm freed from the power of sin, I'm now free to sin. No, being freed from the power of sin and then sinning is putting you right back under the power from which you were freed. It's illogical. That's not the conclusion we should come to. But listen, though it's not dealt with specifically here, there's a second error that is addressed implicitly. And it is this, I can choose to obey God or I can choose the freedom of doing whatever I want to do. You understand that reasoning? That's reasoning that I lived with for a long time. I still struggle with the reasoning today. I've struggled with that reasoning this week, but there was a time in my life where I believe that I did know Christ as my Savior, but I played with that concept. I can choose to obey God and submit to obedience, or I can choose my own freedom. 
Now, out of love for God, often I would choose to submit to what God had said. But I always knew that I had the option to be free and choose my way. Both of these ideas are delusional. There is no such way. We live under the dominion of sin or we live under the dominion of obedience. You have been transferred into the realm of another master. And no matter how you want to cut it and look at it, when you are choosing your own freedom as a believer in Christ, what you're really doing is listening to your old master. But you're still under the mastery of the lordship of Jesus Christ. As human beings, there's no third route. There's no ultimate, final, and complete and absolute freedom. We are under the lordship of Christ or we are not. And so the question is, who is your master? Is your soul oriented toward obeying God's call to righteousness or are you characteristically responsive to the power of sinful cravings? Genuine believers remain susceptible to the call to sin. But do we habitually fight that call? If you say, I find this choice to place myself under obedience to Christ as a difficult thing that I do occasionally, but really honestly I'm quite comfortable under the call of sin. That is to do my own thing my own way how I feel like it. I'll fit Jesus in here and there, listen to him once in a while for counsel, but I'm really going my own way. What that's an evidence is that really you're under the bondage of sin. You're under the master Satan. You're doing what he wants you to do and you find it easy because your flesh responds so naturally to what he's asking you to do. Or do you say, no, I've been liberated from this master and I have been placed into the lordship of Christ under his watch care and under his sovereign word and I find that there is a constant battle against what is wrong. That's a good thing. There will be a fight. There will be a battle. Is that battle habitual? Or is it just momentary, occasional? Paul rejoices in the fact, in the case of the Romans, that they are indeed fighting. The fight was definitely on with them, and he is grateful to see this in them. He says to them, verse 17, Thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, that you've become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Again, we see the stark contrast. You were slaves of sin. You are not now. The fight is on. Yes, the temptation continues. The old master's voice is heard over the wall. But you're not under his authority any longer. You're fighting sin. And I rejoice that though once you were enslaved to sin, you're not now. Conversion results in obedience from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. When a person comes to trust the death and resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and when a person is then filled with the Spirit of God, baptized in the Spirit of God, and there is new and genuine life there, there are new ears. There are ears that open up to hear the voice of God. And there is in the heart a desire and a response with this new heart to that message of what God is saying. There is a standard of teaching that is referred to here. 
So the Bible speaks of God's revealed word as being committed into the trust of believers on various occasions. But here, we actually have a little different take. Here, it is the believers who are themselves delivered into the trust of God's word. It's a beautiful thought. This standard of teaching. That is, when a believer is delivered from the realm and the power of sin, that believer is delivered into the realm and the power of God's authoritative truth. There is a word from God that pertains to how we are to live and ears that are open to it. Though not under law, we nonetheless conform our lives to the standard teaching of God's word. Liberation from the powers of the old age is a freedom to become what God's word dictates that we should become. And as verse 18 indicates, this is a settled reality for believers. Do you see that? Verse 18, having been set free from sin. That connects to you were once slaves of sin, which connects to the whole first part of the chapter, which indicates one who is lost. You've been set free from the bondage of sin, and you have become slaves of righteousness. To be set free from the one is to become a slave to the other. And so, Paul pats the Romans on the back. And he says, you're really special good people, doesn't he? Ah, not at all. What does he say? Where does the praise go? Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God you were delivered and have been put into this new realm of obedience to the Word of God. When God delivers us from the bondage of sin, it's His pure grace that supplies us with His Word to guide our spiritual development. It is all of grace. And so we give thanks to God for any light that we've come to see. Now Paul pauses here to admit something to his readers. Verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. I think what he's saying there is he's apparently claiming that this slavery analogy is a weak one. But he uses it to convey a significant truth about God. It does work. The truth is here. But when you talk about your relationship to God just as slave master, there's something lacking there. Obviously, we can talk about a relationship with God as father-son, father-daughter. There's a, there's a familial oneness there, and there's many other pictures as shepherd and sheep and, and the like. And slave-master doesn't work on every level here. I'm just speaking in, with human language because I've got, I'm finding an analogy here. But he's using this analogy purposefully, and you'll notice he doesn't back away from it and say, I'm, I'm sorry for using that analogy. It wasn't really good. Let me go on with another one. He sticks with it. Because this idea of being transferred from one realm to another realm is vital to what he's saying. Let me quote Edwards here as he has an excellent quotation. James Edwards says, Paul would risk offense to the sacred in order to communicate the sacred to the secular. He would risk offense to the sacred in order to communicate the sacred to the secular. In other words, I'll use this analogy because it will get somewhere at the heart of the issue. And so the middle of verse 19, he goes on then and says, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. You see, he doesn't back off of the analogy. And think of it. In our unsaved state, our various body parts, mind and will, were given over with earnest devotion to satisfy the dictates of the flesh. 
We presented our bodies to lust, to greed, to envy, to self-pity, to self-autonomy, to theft, to drunkenness, to pride, to hatred. We gave ourselves to these things. Believers are to then yield their bodies to the service of righteousness with all the vigor they once served sin. I mean, think of it, we're under this master who is cruel and wicked and is taking life from us. But we're serving with great enthusiasm. And obviously that's because of our fallenness. But now that we're in this new realm, we're to pour out that same enthusiasm to serve Christ with all of our heart and soul, to give Him our body parts to serve righteousness. Now we need to be cautious here. We cannot simply stop sinning. We must actively do right with our hands and eyes and ears and legs and minds and tongues and and the like. Let me take what is becoming a very common battle and struggle, just one sin issue, not to say that it's the worst sin of all sins, but it is a very common trial and I think useful for illustration. We have a man who has become slowly hooked on pornography. Now think of how this man lives his life. He goes away from the home to work one day, and he is thinking about his next private session at the computer screen, we'll say. And really, throughout the day at work, it motivates him. He thinks about it. He's excited about the prospect. And as he comes home, the only thing he's really thinking about is how to avoid detection. How can I work the family program here this night to find time to get alone, to do my thing, and to, and to glut my own, uh, satiate my own drive? So he avoids detection. He yields to the power and finds a momentary pleasure there in it and then goes off to work the next day thinking about the next opportunity. A pattern is set. A way of thinking is set. A way of living your life within a family is set. And slowly but surely, he continues to develop lawless ways that continue on into more lawlessness. So what's the picture in contrast This same individual, having come to repentance of sin, will leave the home in the morning concentrating his mind on other things and choosing to make his mind subject to what God has called him to do. To think differently. To not allow his mind to go there. To stop it and say, I must actively concentrate and think on other things. And so he disciplines his eyes. He disciplines his eyes on the way to work and at work, and he disciplines his mind to be concentrating on things that he should, and it's a battle, and there's times that he falls short, but he continues to work his mind, yielding to what God has called him to do and to faithfully thinking different ways. Now he's coming home, and he thinks very differently. It's not, how do I avoid detection tonight? What his thoughts are as he's going home is, how do I serve my family when I get home? What is it that needs to be done? How is it that I can be a blessing to them? How is it that I can bring the truth of God to bear in my family's life tonight? What projects can I complete? How can I give myself in service to my family? He's thinking of others now instead of simply himself and his own gut pleasures. He's thinking of how do I serve and give and turn myself over to other people. All the way coming home. As he gets home, he begins to put that into practice and deal with the 50,000 crises that face him there, perhaps. But he begins to look at issues that way. And it's not, I don't want to deal with the crisis. It's, I'm here to meet whatever crisis there is. It's not, I want to avoid detection. 
from my family. It's I want to serve them and give myself to them. Just in this one analogy. Then he goes off to work the next day with a certain sense of thanksgiving in his heart that something good has happened in his home the night before and he looks forward to coming back again and doing something similar this night. Now, you you see in this, just to use this one example, both ways feed a way of life. Both scenarios feed a way of life. There's lawlessness in the first scenario. There is a willing rejection of the will of God which begins to develop a pattern of behavior where lawlessness feeds lawlessness feeds lawlessness. On the other side, there are acts of righteousness, of selflessness, and of honor before God that begin to feed a way of life that leads to sanctification. On this end of the scale is death. On this end of the scale is life and sanctification, little by little. This word sanctification, and I should stop to say, fill in any blank that's there. Play the same scenario out with bitterness. You leave the house in the morning with bitter thoughts that you allow to continue to take deep seed, or you think differently and apply differently and live differently. But thinking of this idea of sanctification, obedience to righteousness over time continues to lead to sanctification. Sanctification, related to that word holy, means in this context the process of being set apart from the world, being set apart unto God, and being transformed into Christ-likeness. So these two agendas can take place depending on where we are yielding our bodies, our purpose, our hopes. And they're not created equal, these two ways. Now think of this. Unbelievers cannot sin with utter abandon, can they? Occasionally, we read on the front page of the newspaper someone who seems to be sinning with utter abandon and whose conscience is absolutely and completely seared. We've had a couple of these visions in the last couple of weeks. It happens occasionally, but it gets on the front page of the paper. Generally, an unbeliever cannot sin with abandon. They have a conscience which informs them of their disobedience to the law of God. Romans chapter 2. There is some sense that what I'm doing isn't right. And so there's really never a full joy and freedom in sin. There can't be. There's always a bondage in it, and there's always some sense that God is not pleased, even if I won't even admit that there is a God. But what is it for us who know Christ as Savior? It's very different, isn't it? Believers, on the other hand, can serve righteousness with utter abandon. There's no law. There's no restriction. You give your body parts to serve righteousness and you can have at it for the rest of eternity, pouring yourself out and doing what is good. There's no law. It's all grace. Now, as we give ourselves to one way or the other, We need to also recognize that there's really no way to hide what we're doing. We might hide a lawless pattern for many, many years. But lawlessness which breeds lawlessness which breeds lawlessness is heading down the hill to the wall of death. And eventually somewhere along the line it will come out.
We cannot hide our sin when it's a pattern in our life and we're constantly yielding to lawlessness. On the other side, it is also not going to be hidden when we are giving ourselves in obedience to righteousness day after day after day. It is going to become evident because we will be pursuing sanctification, even if it's an uphill battle. I've used this quotation numerous times on Mother's Day, but it's fitting and I wouldn't really mind if everybody had it memorized, so you'll hear it again. But Augustine, the bishop of North Africa, 4th century, paid perhaps the highest tribute that could ever be paid to a mother. His mother Monica, when he wrote of her after her death, these words, and they're convicting. Whoever knew her, he writes, greatly praised, honored, and loved you in her. For through the witness of the fruits of a holy lifestyle, they perceived your presence in her heart. They loved you in her. And it was the fruits of a holy lifestyle. It was the fruits of righteousness upon righteous deed upon righteous deed upon righteous deed leading to her sanctification that people looked at this woman and said, God's inside her. Would that that were said of us. Did you hear as we sung of it this morning, there is such a holy war going on in that person's soul that you see it on their face in sanctification. They loved you in her. May others love God in us as God shines from us as he purifies and sanctifies our souls. Believers are enslaved to righteousness. This is a fact, yes, and it is a call, yes. It is an indicative and it is an imperative, if you will. It is a statement of fact. It is a call to moral action. We are slaves of righteousness. Now, where Paul labors at this point, beginning at verse 20, is to say not only that we are enslaved to righteousness as believers, but secondly, that enslavement to righteousness is great gain. We must understand this. When, verse 20, you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Now he's kind of tracking back here to that idea that there's sort of a way of freedom. I can choose to submit to God's law or I can choose to be free. He said, well, yeah, there was a time when you were free from righteousness. Now what does he mean by that? He's not saying that unbelievers are under no obligation to God's law, that they're free to pursue sin however they wish. What he's saying is that under the bondage of sin, righteous living does not exercise a commanding pull on the unbeliever's life. Yes, so in one sense you're free from sin and it's your destruction. You cannot serve two masters, is another way of putting it. Sin is unrelenting in its demands upon a sinner's time, interests, and affections. Unbelievers cannot slip away here and there to serve righteousness. 
Regarding this freedom from sin, Paul then asks, verse 21, but what fruit? So you were free from sin, yes, you weren't under its dictates, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. The fruit that he's speaking of here, I think, is actions and character. And everything that came from your bondage years to sin is shameful. That's all it is. A Christian, ask yourself this question. You know, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your sins have been forgiven. You know Christ as your Savior. Let me ask you. Name a sin you're proud of having committed. Now, if you are proud of having committed a sin, you should be seriously worried. But really, if you know the Lord and love Him and desire to serve Him, what sin have you ever committed that you really want to tell everybody about? It's shameful. You don't want anybody to know about it. Maybe if it's helpful and edifying to let someone know about it, but you don't look forward to talking about it. Name a habitual sin with which you have struggled that energizes you and enhances the quality of your life. What is it? There isn't one. It's going down the hill to the wall of death. It's not accomplishing anything of good. No sin ever will. You will never gain anything good or lasting out of sin. You may gain pleasure for a short season, but you're never going to get anywhere with it. Sin leads only to death. Death of motivation, death of family relationships, of financial health, of physical well-being, of sleep, of time, of clear conscience, and on it goes. If there could be a scientific study done that would be fair, it would discover this. Anything that God's Word calls sin leads to death. It leads to breakdown. It leads to destruction. It doesn't ever accomplish anything good. And we've got to put to rest any notion to the contrary. I've got God's law over here, which I can choose to submit to, but I can be free to walk here. No, we can't. When we walk out from under the umbrella of God's law, of God's will, we walk under the bondage of sin which leads to death. Verse 22, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Moo writes that Paul confronts us with ultimate powers that dominate the two respective ages of salvation history, sin and God. Obedience to God's will leads to growth in sanctification, which culminates in eternal life. We do not earn eternal life by sanctification, but to those God sanctifies, He gives eternal life. He purifies us until we meet Christ and are like Him as He is. And so, tags on this statement in verse 23 to conclude the entire chapter. Very simply said, here it is. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In bite-sized installments, until one reaches eternity, sin delivers death. 
separation from God and all that is good, which is finalized when the sinner, unrepentant, meets God in eternity. But the free gift of God's grace to those who believe is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Now, that eternal life is a present gift in our life that is working itself out until we meet Christ and enter into that eternal life in eternity in His presence. And so what it really comes down to is who the Master is. Which Master are you serving? Are you willing to hitch your wagon to sin? If you are, if you're willing to stay under the bondage of sin, to do your thing your way the way you like it, you have hitched your wagon to something that's going to crash. Death is all there is in the future. And death is really all that you're reaping right now. If you've not come to submit to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to do so today. You've got nothing to turn from but death. But the big question then is, I think for all of us, is really what kind of master is Jesus? Do I really want to serve as the slave of righteousness? I think again of these words, Whoever knew her greatly praised, honored, and loved you in her, for through the witness of the fruits of a holy lifestyle, they perceived your presence in her heart. These words of adoration from a son who had been transformed, himself from sin. I mean, did he look at this and say now, seeing Christ in his mother, oh, what drudgery, what sorrow, what misery, what a waste of life, what a horrible way to live. She could have really had fun. It's really all too bad. I could have shown her how to have a lot more than she had. No. Augustine, a man terribly bound in sin, came to know his mother's Savior. And he came to realize who his master really was. And he fought the transition between death to life with great trial, with great effort. But he came to the place where he yielded and came to realize that this field was a good field. There is, he wrote after his conversion, a joy which is not given to the ungodly, but to those who love you for your own sake, whose joy you yourself are. And this is the happy life, to rejoice to you, of you, and for you. This is it, and there is no other. And he tried a lot of them. They who think there is another pursue something else which is not true joy. Let's picture it this way. There's some very young children, really don't know where they are in the world, but they're very young children, and they're playing together in a hollow between two ridges in a mud puddle on a stifling hot day. And they're having the time of their life. They're stomping around in this mud puddle and just having a great time. The mother of two of the children walks by and says, Come with me to her children. I want you to come with me. Stop playing in the mud puddle. And it's a pretty hard call. 
And the other kids scoff and they even pity their friends for having to leave the freedom of the puddle. But not many steps toward mother, the kids start to feel a strong and refreshing breeze as they obey her and walk in the direction she's walking. And just a few steps further, they mount the ridge. And there at the top of the ridge, in their very young life, for the very first time, they get a picture of the ocean. There is the vast sea in front of them. And there are the waves crashing on the shore. And there is the stretch of sand. And sandcastle delight. And a beautiful scene. And they run joyfully toward the sea. They get closer. As they, as they get closer to the sea, the sound of the other kids begins to fade in their ears. And there's the other kids, oblivious to the sea. Never, never seen it, never heard of it, know nothing about it. But there they are in the puddle, sweating in the heat, burning in the sun, caked with mud, making their mud pies. They ridicule the two siblings who have had to leave the puddle and go with the law of their mother. How horrible it is. I play off of C.S. Lewis's line in these ideas as he writes and says, All we leave when we turn from the stifling mud puddle of sin is our own misery and death. What we gain is the daily experience of eternal life in fellowship with Jesus. Now, it's no picnic at the sea. I'm not saying that that's the Christian life. But it's filled with joys that are unspeakable to someone who is under the bondage of sin. The life you live hinges on the master that you choose. You will never regret having chosen Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And you will never lose by daily serving Him until He conforms you into His image and calls you home. Until His life is seen coming from your life. But in the end, did you hear what the choir sang? In the end, it's not a matter of us making the right choice sort of hedging our bets and trying to figure out which way is going to lead to where we want it to go. It's really not about that. God's grace to us in Christ ultimately lays claim to us as He becomes our soul's treasure, worthy of complete devotion and the source of all joy and satisfaction to us. He is a God and a Master who puts a day at the sea into the perspective of being not really that big of a deal. The wonder and the joy that is in him is unbounded and beyond comprehension in this world. If you're under the mastery of sin, the only answer is to flee for refuge to Jesus Christ. That is the only answer that there is. You need to turn from your mud puddle you need to turn from the dictates of sin. You can't do it. You'll not pull this deal off in your own strength, but you need to reach out to His hand of rescue and turn from your sin and come to trust the death and resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You must do that. Or you will remain bound in sin and you will hit the wall.
If you have come to that place and you rejoice to have walked with Christ, to have heeded the call of salvation, we must turn a deaf ear to the temptations of this world and give our body parts to the authority of Jesus Christ and His Word and live righteously as He sanctifies us and fits us for eternity and fits us to change others while we're here. What master are you serving? Where is this master leading you? To bondage or to eternal life? Let's bow for prayer. We give you thanks, our Father, for the love that is in Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sin, and I pray that you'll draw to yourself anyone who does not know him as Savior, and I pray that you would draw each of us to the path of obedience, rejoicing to know that it leads to eternal life. May we know the joy of walking in fellowship with you, and I pray that you will take these words, that you will take your word, and allow it to settle into our hearts and to transform us. Thank you. In behalf of all who know you as Savior, I thank you that we are slaves of righteousness. I thank you that we've come through your grace to choose the Master who is the source of all honor and privilege and joy and thanksgiving and beauty. And we thank you that through our obedience to righteousness that you are sanctifying us and granting us new senses of the pleasure there is in you and of what awaits us in eternity. We praise you. We give you thanks in this prayer and now as we sing. Through Christ I pray. Amen.